of Ruth, chapter 2 today. Last week we studied chapter 1 and introduced the characters and, and got Ruth and, well, originally Naomi and her family from Bethlehem to Moab. That introduced Ruth and then Ruth and Naomi were just coming back when we left off last time. So hopefully you've had a chance to find that. Would you stand with me, please? And I'm going to read the chapter for us. Ruth chapter 2, starting with verse 1. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight... I may, found, may find favor. And he said to her, she said to her, go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Then Boaz said to Ruth, you will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Lay your eyes beyond the field which they reap, and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work. And a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord. For you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed parched grain to her, and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and let some grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it not, leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Then she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today? And where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked today, is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, The man is a relative of ours, one of our near kinsmen. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, He also said to me, You shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest 
and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, what wonders are in your word. May that be true for each one here this morning, that we would behold wondrous things out of your law. Father, this is an enjoyable story to read. But more that, more than that, it is a beautiful picture of your love and gracious provision for us and what it looks like when the right type of love and humility interact among us humans. So Lord, give us fresh ears and fresh eyes for this story today. Show us yourself. Show us how we are obeying you and give us encouragement that way. Show us ways in which we are not obeying you and convict us. May we repent. Father, this is your word. You have spoken. But I desire to be faithful to it this morning in communicating it to those gathered here. So I ask for your help, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would anoint my lips to speak your words and to be accurate with the text and that you give us ears to hear and hearts to obey what you show us. We'll thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Last week, we met the three main characters of the book. We met a bunch of people last week, a handful, but we met the main characters, and they are Naomi, that was chapter 1, verse 2, first time she's mentioned. Then verse 4 of chapter 1 is Ruth. And then today, in verse 1 of our chapter, for today, we meet Boaz. Naomi means pleasant, Ruth means friendship, and Boaz means the Lord is my strength. We'll talk about that when we get to him. So here's the family tree. In case you weren't here last week or you're not familiar with this story, we have a man from Bethlehem, Judah, Elimelech. And he's married to Naomi. And they have two sons, Malon and Chilion. Sick and tired, those of you who were here last week. There's a famine in the land during the, day, the days when the judges ruled. So Elimelech takes his family and they go to Moab, which is enemy territory. We don't know fully why they did that. It didn't seem like a good move. It didn't seem like he was seeking the Lord's will and his guidance. But that's what they did. And once they got there, Elimelech died. That's why I have him grayed out. He died. And at some point in the 10 years that they stayed there, they weren't planning to stay that long, but they did. They stayed 10 years. In that decade, at some point, the sons married Moabite girls. And that's where we get Ruth and Orpah. But then the sons died. And then word came to Naomi that the Lord had provided food. The famine was over. And she says, I'm going back to Bethlehem. And the two daughters-in-law say, we're going with you. And they both said that they would go, but... Naomi successfully talked Orpah out of going, and she went back with her family, presumably back to her parents' house, and presumably perhaps to a second husband, a new family. We don't know. We don't have any other mention of her. But Ruth couldn't be talked out of it. She gave that beautiful speech that we talked about last week, saying, I will go where you go. I will stay where you stay. Nothing but death will part you and me. But right in the middle of that speech, very important to our purposes, reading this in the Bible, is that your people will be my people, and then what? Your God will be my God. Whether that was the moment of her conversion or not, she had chosen, I am rejecting the false gods of Moab, I am believing in the one true God that I have seen you worship, Naomi. That's the important stuff from chapter 1. As far as the entire book goes, there are some key ideas that I shared with you. I'm actually going to add one word to our list for this week. But redemption, we'll talk about it a lot more next week, but redemption is a huge theme of this book. Return, that was that shub word that we talked about last week, all over chapter one. Returning, and spiritually speaking, repentance. Today, glean, 12 times in the book of Ruth, all in today's chapter. Kindness. That Hebrew word, hesed, God's loving loyalty and faithfulness to us. And then providence is not a word that you're going to find 
in any translation of Ruth because it's not in the original. Instead, it's a, a principle. It's something that we can see enacted that God is orchestrating all of this really behind the scenes, but making it all play out. And we're going to see that in a big way today. So those are the big ideas. And then I've offered you a theme for each chapter. Last week, we talked about returning. That was chapter one. Today, reaping. Next week, redeeming. And finally, resting. We'll talk about those and how they fit into the story. But with all of that said, I have one main idea for you this morning. It's a simple, it's one that many of you knew before you walked in the door, but that's okay. God is at work in our lives, whether we know it or not. That's what I want you to see from this chapter this morning. If you don't get anything else, God is at work in our lives, whether we know it or not. Because that's true of Ruth, that's true of Naomi, and it's even true of Boaz in what we're going to see today. John Piper said it this way, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of only three of them. See, he's at work around us. He is working his sovereign plan in our midst. And a lot of times we don't see it, and sometimes we never see it, and sometimes we don't see it till years later. But he is at work. He is bringing everyone who's in this room, anyone who's watching or listening online, you're part of this because of God's plan for your life. You're here today because God wants you here this morning. And he has something for you. Not because I'm the one delivering the word, but because it's his word and it's living and it's powerful. Let's go back to verse one of this chapter for today. Chapter two, where it says, there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So right off the bat, the narrator wants us to know this is a relative of Naomi's husband. How are they related? We don't know. We find out by the time we get to verse 20 of this chapter that he's a close relative, but we don't know how they're related. Some have said they were cousins, uncle, whatever. They're related. That's all I know. It says that he is a man of great wealth. That sounds impressive. Everybody wants to have a rich uncle, right? Maybe he was an uncle. Apparently he was rich, but that's not really all this means. It could be translated as a mighty, valiant man. One of my commentaries had this to say about this term that we have as a man of great wealth. The meaning usually carries the idea of a war hero. The picture is that of a mighty warrior, though that's probably not the best explanation here. It can also mean capable person or wealthy man, like we have in the King, New King James. The story clearly shows Boaz to be a man of wealth and influence, having standing in the community. We'll see that play out in chapter 4. He does not fight battles like Gideon, because that's where this phrase comes up. Both Gideon and Jephthah in the same time period, the period of the Judges, in the book of Judges, you'll read, a mighty man of valor. You get into 1st, 2nd Samuel, those mighty men of David, same term. So often it's used for warfare or for people who are fighting battles. But in this case, Boaz does not fight battles like Gideon and those others. But he does own property and he does have servants. And there must be more to it than just wealth. Because this same word will be used in the chapter next week to describe Ruth. Does Ruth have money? Is she wealthy? No, she's very poor at this point in the story. So what this is really saying is that he's a man with integrity and godliness. In short, he is a man of both moral worth and material wealth. So this is a man of integrity, and it's a man of means. And it says, again, of the family of Elimelech. We'll find out in chapter 4 that in the lineage of Boaz, we can trace him back to Perez, one of the sons of Judah. And I mentioned this a moment ago, but his name means in him is strength. And something else that we can infer about him from the rest of the story is that he's single. Whether he was never married or whether he's a widower, he is not currently married. That's what we know about him at this point after verse 1. Look at verse 2. So Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And she, Naomi, said to her, Ruth, go, my daughter. Ruth, the Moabitess. Second time that phrase has appeared, it happened once in chapter one, it's gonna keep coming up because the narrator, the human author of the book, wants to remind us 
that Ruth is a foreigner. She is from the land of Moab. And that is to remind us and point out to us the favorable treatment that she's going to get. It's not what you would expect. Racism, hatred of people from different places, different skin colors, different ethnicities, this is not new. Unfortunately, it has been common in all places and times to some extent. And at that point, the other people of the children of Israel, those who had received the promised land, those who were God's chosen people, in many ways, didn't like those other nations. And that's the way the average person would have felt. But that's not how Boaz feels, as we're going to see. But the narrator tells us, it's Ruth the Moabitess. And she says, please let me go into the field. Why? Because she has true faith and true faith acts. And that's what she's doing right now. She's realizing, we're poor. I promised to come back and take care of you. And this is the best way to do it. So I'm going to go out and glean. What does that mean? That word in different forms appears 12 times in this short chapter. So what does it mean? It means to pick up grain. In this case, we're talking about barley. Remember, it's the barley harvest, according to chapter 1. So the reapers would leave some of the grain on purpose for the poor, and that was required in the law. Now, when I was a teenager, let's say 13 or 14, for several years in a row, our family went on vacation in summer to where my dad is from. That's northern Maine. It's farmland. My grandparents and other family were potato farmers, and there, there was lots to do on the farm. And one of the things, one of the years I got there, I, I liked getting to help drive tractors, or actually later on to drive tractors. But this particular summer, my uncle needed his lawn mowed, his big lawn, and I got to do it with his riding lawnmower. He had a Cub Cadet lawnmower, and that was really cool to me. And he said, don't show your corners. Now, how many of you know what that means? Good, I'm not alone. What he means is that when you turn the corner, if you turn it too sharp, you're going to leave a little strip of grass there. Ever done that? Am I talking to people who've mowed their lawns? At some? Okay, yes, you're with me. Good, good. And sure enough, I wasn't doing it the way he wanted it and, and looping around and, and that kind of thing, so I, I showed my corners. Well, back in the Old Testament, God wanted them to show their corners. He wanted them to leave grain standing in the fields, and he actually commanded them, don't cut those corners. Leave them for the poor. You say, what on earth are you talking about? This is Leviticus chapter 23. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap. Nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So God, in a, a welfare, or somebody said more of a workfare program, has arranged so that the farmers, the landowners, are going to leave grain and other crops standing in the field a little bit so that those who can't afford their own garden or property can go and they can pluck the grain or they can pluck the olives or the grapes or whatever the case may be, and it's feeding the poor. God planned that, and he planned it for the poor, the widows, the orphans, the strangers. It's almost as if that law was written for Naomi and Ruth. And what does she say? I'm going to go into the field of him in whose sight I may find favor. Does that sound like Ruth knows where she's going? No, she didn't know where she was going to go. She was going to go wherever they'll let me glean, wherever they're finished harvesting or will let me in, that's where I'm going to go. Now, what's the main point for this morning? God is at work in our lives whether we know it or not. He's at work in our lives whether we're aware. And those of you who were here last week, toward the end, I offered a statement about God. And, and these that are standing out to me as we go through, I encourage you, anytime you're reading God's word, what does it say about God? What has he done? What is he like? Here's what I offered you last week. God is the God of the full and the empty. That's meaningful to me. I don't know about you guys. To know that on my best day, when everything's going well, he is God, and he's on the throne. And when everything just fell apart, and my dog died, and my car got wrecked because a deer jumped out in front of me, whatever bad things you can imagine, the stock market tanked, oh, imagine that. God is still in control. He is still good. He is still kind. 
his mercies are still new for today. So that was last week. God is the God of the full and the God of the empty. First one for you today. God is the God of the insignificant. And by that, I mean he's the God of insignificant people. You know I'm using quotes for that. Insignificant people, insignificant events. Look at verse 3. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Literally, the Hebrew says, her chance chanced upon. It's emphatic there. It just happened. Now, does the author mean that this is a coincidence? No. But it's said that way probably to draw our attention to it. See, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The roll of the die. God's still in charge of that. Does that mean he decides who wins my Yahtzee game? We can talk about that. That's not really my point. But he's in charge of things that seem like they're up to chance. It's really providence. God is at work in our lives. God was directing her, as David Jeremiah said, to the right place at the right time with the right person in order to meet her needs. Proverbs 16, earlier in the chapter, verse 9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The Lord is in charge. He's superintending what's going on. Verse 4. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Behold. We read that word and think that's not a word I use. Behold, it means, hey, wow, pay attention. Wake up. It's, it's a word of suddenness or surprise because no sooner did Ruth happen to get to this field that belonged to Boaz than, oh, here comes Boaz. Imagine that. What are the possibilities? And he greets his people. Obviously, he is a kind, what we would say, a Christian man. He, he is a believer in the one true God. And he is treating his employees well and greeting them. The Lord bless you. And they say, the Lord bless you also. Any of you, that happening in your workplace? Anybody have that this week? Probably not. This was a good place to work. This was a good man to have as your boss. Verse 5, Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? Now this is, this is a question, this is a little bit of conjecture on my part, okay? I confess that. Why did he notice? Well, we could get, this, get spiritual and say, because God caused him to. Yes, that's true. That, that's kind of my point today, right? But why did he notice? Was she especially pretty? We don't know. Text doesn't tell us because of what she's wearing. Is that what he said? P possibly. Um, I was thinking, is it because she's a Moabite? Did she look different in some way? Maybe. Was she the only gleaner in the field? Maybe not. How about this? She was the only gleaner in the field that he didn't know. That's a guess on my part. After thinking about it this week, that's, that's what came to me because I, I learned from the Bible knowledge commentary that normally the gleaners would move in after the harvesters had left an area. So often the gleaners weren't there while the reapers were reaping the field. So maybe that caused her to stand out. Um, I read other places that tradition, common practice, was that she had to have permission from the foreman or even the landowner in order to glean that field, maybe. Verse 6, so the servant who was in charge of the reapers, the foreman, answered and said, it is the young Moabite woman who came back, that's our word from last week, returned. She returned with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. She's described here as a young woman. And as this plays out, we're going to see she's a hard worker. She's working hard. Why is she doing this? Because they don't have any food to eat. They don't have any money. They are both widows, and she has sworn, she has vowed to take care of her mother-in-law. So she goes out, and she's, she's ready to go at it. She's working. We read about sheaves. That may not be a familiar word to you. Those are bundles of grain. And when it says the house, probably just a temporary shelter out there in the field for workers. We would think of a tent or something, a lean-to. Verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, you will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field. 
nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. He says, listen, my daughter. Now, I don't know how John MacArthur knows this, but he says that Boaz was between 45 and 55 years of age. That's probably the right ballpark because if Naomi was 50-ish, he would probably have been pretty close in age. He was a contemporary of Elimelech, probably. We don't know that for sure, but let's just say he's middle-aged, okay? She would be younger than that. And he later contrasts himself with the younger men in chapter three. And he refers to my young women, so the servants, but specifically the ones who are tying up the sheaves because the young men are the ones who cut the grains with the, the hand sickles. So if we pull this together, we have reapers and what I'm gonna call bundlers and gleaners. So those are the three terms I'd like you to get. I have a slide here for you to show that the young men are the reapers, the young women are the bundlers, and then Ruth and other of the poor would be the gleaners. So you have the picture in your mind. The men are out there and they're swinging that sickle and they're cutting down. That's hard work. They're, they're using a hand sickle to cut down that standing grain that's ripe. That knocks it down. And then the ladies are coming behind and they're, they're picking it up, they're bundling it, they're tying around it so that it can be picked up later and transported to wherever they're going to beat it out to separate the, the grain from the chaff. But when they're finished, remember the edges of the field have their own harvesting that, they, that the poor can do, but also gleaners would be those who picked up because maybe they dropped one. Because guess what? There's another rule that they have to leave whatever drops. They can't pick it up. So he says, you stay with my young women, you stay with my young men, They'll go out in the normal manner and you glean right there with them. So that's a blessing. He also tells his young men, leave her alone. He's going to protect her. And not only that, but help yourself to the water. That was doubly weird for that culture in that time because normally a Jew would not offer to give a drink to a Gentile. And furthermore, a man wouldn't draw for a woman. It would be the other way around in that time and place. So he's saying, help yourself. Somebody said it was kind of like he was the boss and he was taking her around and showing her the, the workplace, and including the break room. Okay, he's going to help make sure that she knows where the water fountain is, that kind of thing. What's he doing? He's promising to protect and provide for Ruth. Verse 10, here's her response. So she fell on her face, which sounds violent. Sounds like she tripped and fell. That's not what it's saying. And she's not worshiping either. She's showing reverence. She fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? She's shocked that anyone is treating her this way. Why have I found favor in your eyes? She's showing humility. She's showing gratitude. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud. You want God to stiff arm you and hold you at a distance? Be proud. Be arrogant. Think you're better than everybody else. Think you know better than everybody else. Great way to have God resist you. But he gives grace to the humble. What's grace? It's his kindness. It's giving us what we don't deserve. It's pouring out his favor on us. I want that. I don't know about you all. I want that. What does that require? Humility. What's humility? Having a low view of yourself, the right view of yourself, I might add. Because Romans 12 tells us not to have too high a view of ourselves, not to have too low a view of ourselves. Because either way, we're thinking too much about ourselves. Instead, to have a right view of ourselves and she seems to have that and here again she knows she's aware i'm a foreigner i don't expect this kind of treatment from anybody verse 11 and boaz answered and said to her 
it has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. And now you have left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. It has been fully reported to me. So it seems Boaz, as an influential person in the community, he's heard. Talk has gone around, in this case, gossip that's favorable towards somebody. Can you imagine? People are talking about this girl who came back with Naomi from the land of Moab. So he's heard about her. In fact, he knows all about her. He just had never seen her until earlier in the chapter that day. So it's been fully reported to me. He knows. Again, there's nothing about Ruth's appearance. It's not that she's a knockout. Maybe she was. I don't know. But the, the important thing to notice here is her character. That's what he's heard about her. You understand the difference between reputation and character. Reputation is what everybody thinks you are, which may or may not be true, and character is what God knows you to be. And she has a godly character. We'll talk more about that next week. And so does he. It's great. The Lord repay your work. A full reward be given you. God cares about orphans and widows. And by this point, Ruth is a widow. So understand, God sees, God knows, God cares. God protects. God blesses. Why? Because he is the God of the insignificant. What man and woman view as insignificant people, oh, God cares all about them. He knows about them. He loves them. Deuteronomy 10.18 is an example. God administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. We're seeing that play out here, aren't we? Psalm 68. A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. He sets the solitary in families. Well, he's a good God. And he cares about the defenseless. And he cares about the poor. And he cares about the stranger. And there may be somebody here this morning, you feel like a total outcast. You feel like you don't fit in anywhere. Been there. God cares about you. He knows you by name. He loves you. He has plans for you. He has blessing for you. So God is a rewarder. He is praying that God would repay your work, reward you for your hard work, and you would receive a full reward. That's what Boaz has just said, but he's not finished. The Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. God is a refuge. The picture there is a mother bird protecting her young by spreading her wings over them, and that's how God protects his people. Now, when I read that, God is a rewarder. He is the reward, and he is a refuge. That reminds me of something we studied a while back. Before Revelation, we did Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 15, we read these words to Abraham. Do not be afraid, Abram. I, God says, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. So this is another statement about God for you. God is the God of refuge and reward. He is our shield. He is our reward. He is our protector. He is our provider. That's our God. That is Jehovah, the God that Ruth has come to and is finding protection and blessing in. She left her gods. Chemosh, forget about him. This is the one true God. This is the one I want. And this is the God she has come to serve. Now, one bit of foreshadowing, one bit of irony, Boaz is going to become the answer to his prayer. That's what God is working out, but we won't get to see that till next week and the following week. Verse 13, then she said, let me find favor in your sight. For you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I'm not like one of your maidservants, or your translation may say, I'm not one of your maidservants. You have comforted me. Husbands in the room, pay attention for a second. Anybody can pay attention. 
That would be better. But husbands, pay attention. You know what he just did? He, Boaz, spoke to her heart. That's another way you can translate that. You have spoken to my heart. You've comforted me. He's promised provision, protection. I'm going to take care of you. And her heart responds to that is what it says here. Verse 14. Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. There's a lot here. Mealtime. You wouldn't expect the boss to come sit with the employees and have a meal. Not in that culture. And here he is. And it seems like it's the normal thing. Everybody gathers together and here we go. And Ruth, come sit by me. And offering grain and vinegar. That doesn't sound that appetizing to us, does it? But that, pick your favorite food. That's what he's offering her. And what does it say? She ate and was satisfied and kept some back. Let me give you modern translation. We don't say this anymore, but when I was a kid, we talked about doggy bags. But now it's a, a to-go box. You get too much food at the restaurant and you take some home. And if you're like us, you leave it on the table or you leave it in the refrigerator and you forget all about it. But you have it because it's extra. Oh, some of you are nodding. You do that too. Think about this. When was the last time Ruth would have eaten a meal that she couldn't finish? Most likely, these women, these two widows, are poor, we might say destitute, they didn't have their refrigerator fully stocked and their pantry full. We say, oh, I can't find anything to eat. That's because there's nothing that you want to eat. That's not because you have nothing to eat. They probably had nothing to eat. So not only did he give her an enjoyable food, he gave her more than she could eat, and she put some away. We don't know if she even had a lunch to bring with her. And he invites her to the table, here, sit next to me, here, have the good stuff and have more than you can eat. And she tucks it away, and we'll come back to that. Verse 15, And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Also, let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. He's going way beyond what the law required. Here it is, Deuteronomy 24. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, in other words, the second group, the bundlers came through and that one got left. Don't go back for it. You shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. This is what God established and this is an example. I don't know whether it usually worked that way, the way it was supposed to or not, but this is an example that God preserved for us in his word to know that it worked the way he planned. And this one who was poor and this one who was a widow was able to glean. Pouring out grace, unearned favor on this young lady. Verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. Then she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. So what's going on here? She's coming back home. She had worked all day. Did you notice that? Until evening. And then she had to, to beat out her grain. So she worked all day long and ended up with an ephah. That makes sense to us, right? An ephah. No, we don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. That's a half bushel. Everybody good now? Some of you know. About 30 pounds. I saw plus or minus, but about 30 pounds. That's a lot. That was a lot just for her to carry. I said earlier, she's a hard worker. She's carrying a 30-pound bag all the way home. What's more interesting, maybe, is that that's about twice as much as one person could normally glean in a day. She's got a double portion she's taking home with her. Furthermore, she gets out her to-go box and says, here, Mom, this is for you. And she enjoys the meal also. Now, what was the main point this morning? What am I trying to get at? God is at work, and I'm going to add two words now. God is at work for good. 
in our lives, whether we know it or not. Now, it doesn't always seem good to us right away, but it is good. And God has been at work in their lives in an amazing way. Look at verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, where have you gleaned today? And where did you work? Now, that, that's probably not how she said it. That was probably much too calm and polite. Where have you been? Where did you get that? Would probably be more the surprise in her voice. Blessed be the one who took notice of you. And we're seeing Naomi must have been pretty excited. Maybe she was excited. Well, I don't know what her personality was. This is great. Where did you go? Where did you get this? That's what she's asking. And she starts pronouncing, she doesn't even know who it is yet. God bless that person. This is a, a, a true, a sincere bless your heart kind of thing, okay? She means it. Blessed be the one who took notice of you. This is an unusually large amount of grain that she's bringing in. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Did that mean anything to Ruth at this point? No. But it means a lot to Naomi. Verse 20, then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi went on and said to her, this man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. And we read that, and if you're not familiar with the story, that just kind of sounds nice in English. She's, she's excited for some reason. Mm -mm. This is a big moment in the book. Naomi is saying, blessed be he of the Lord. That's nice. That's blessing Boaz. That's a good thing for her to do. Who? The next word is who in English. Who is who? Hmm? Is it Boaz? You might think that as you read it, but that's not, that's not the who. The who, usually, when you're reading the Bible, you need to look for the closest noun that precedes that. So is it Boaz? Come on. No. Okay, good. Who is it? The Lord. Thank you. Blessed be he of the Lord. The Lord has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. You say, so what? I know that. Naomi didn't know that. Were you here last week or have you read chapter one before? The Almighty has afflicted me. I am sorry for your sake. The, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Don't call me pleasant. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. The Lord has been mean to me. Ever felt that way? One honest person, thank you. We're afraid to say that in church, huh? Don't be. There are moments you feel, God, have you forsaken me? And he hadn't. And I don't know exactly where in this process that Naomi has come to a place of repentance. But obviously she has. This is the evidence, this is the proof. We know that she's had a change of mind. She's had a change of heart that's resulting in a change of action. She doesn't believe that the Lord's hand is against her anymore. Before, all she could say was, may the Lord bless you because you've been kind to the dead and to me. May he be kind to you because you've been kind to me. That's the best she could come up with in chapter one. But now she sees, oh no, that wasn't right. God is kind to the living and the dead. He's still kind to me, is the way we could paraphrase that. What word is this? This is kindness. This is our key word, kindness, hesed, that we talked about last week. God's loving loyalty. This shows that she's had a change of heart Somebody said her bitterness is being replaced by thankfulness. All right, so we got that. That's the first half of that verse. But Naomi said to her, this man is a relation of ours. Well, we knew that back in verse one. We've known that the whole chapter. They didn't know that. They didn't have any of the chapters. This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Depending on what translation you have, you may have one of our kinsmen, one of our near kinsmen, one of our kinsmen redeemers. You may have any of that or you may have something close to that. But it's close relative. What is that? Here's another Hebrew word for you. Not on the test. Don't have to remember it, but you may see it somewhere. It's a goel. 
a redeemer. A goel, a kinsman redeemer. Somebody who's in my family and is able to redeem. What does redeem mean? Well, often we think of redeem as one who buys back. A lot of times it's someone who buys somebody out of slavery. That's actually one of the jobs of a kinsman redeemer, a goel. A special family representative, somebody said. A chieftain in the family. The introduction of this idea that Boaz is a redeemer is tipping us off. It's letting us know he has legal responsibilities to his family. Particularly family members who are impoverished. And in many ways, this is a turning point in the whole book. The Baker Commentary says this, The duties required of the redeeming relative, that's Boaz, included providing an heir to maintain the family line of a deceased brother. We'll talk about that next week. Avenging the killing of a family member. That doesn't apply to this story at all, just in case you're wondering. Redeeming land sold outside the family. That applies here probably. And redeeming an impoverished relative who had been sold into slavery. So that's what the Goel, the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer was responsible to do for the family. He's a leader of the family and those are his responsibilities. So that's what somebody reading this back in that time would have been thinking. Oh yeah, he's a Goel. That's a big deal. Verse 21. Ruth the Moabitess said, he also said to me, you shall stay by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that people do not meet. That's not very clear. If you have a different translation, you may have harm or even assault you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. So this continues until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest. Well, how long is that? We said last time that the time of year is late April into May. They're in the barley harvest season, and wheat was after that. So we're into mid-June or possibly even July on our calendar. So we're talking about a few months, two months maybe, and during that time, she keeps bringing in grain, barley, and then wheat. And that doesn't mean that they had so much they didn't know what to do with it. They could have sold it and, and gotten other things that they needed, different kinds of food. God is providing them, providing for them in an abundant way, something they never would have expected, never could have dreamed. He's pouring out his grace, his kindness, his mercy on them. And this is just the start. Because we've got two more chapters of God blessing these ladies. What's the main point this morning? God is at work in our lives. God is at work for good in our lives, whether we know it or not. And let's face it, there are times that we're oblivious. There are even times we try to figure out, oh, well, well, this happened because that protected me from such and such. We might be right, we might be wrong. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. They are better. He's taking care of his people. If you're here this morning, I said earlier, you're here because God wanted you here. And I know most of you, but I don't know all of you. If there's anyone here, you've never come to Jesus for the cleansing of sins, the forgiveness that he offers, the eternal life that he's provided. This is your day. This is your invitation. That you would find the grace and the mercy we've been talking about being offered to you. Eternal life, being with God for eternity a home with him in heaven. That's what he's offering for free. But we have to believe. We have to call on him to believe that he's the Savior. If you're a believer, I, I would imagine that you could quote Romans eight twenty eight forward and backward. He works all things together for good. For whom? For those who are the called those who love him, those who are believers. And if you're here this morning and you're trusting in Jesus, you're a believer. He's working for your good. It doesn't seem good. It is good. It seems bad. It is good. He's working it all for his glory and for our good. Are you going to trust him? Will you acknowledge him in all your ways like we talked about last week? Will you thank him for what he's bringing in your life? James 1, when you're in a trial... Praise the Lord. Be thankful. 
in all things. Give thanks. In all things, praise him. Will you serve him? But he, but they, God is good. And he's kind. And he does all things well. And he's going to bring it to good. You may not see it. May not see it in this lifetime. We talked about Job last week. We may not know why. But if we can trust him with salvation, if we can trust him with eternity, we can trust him with the here and now, and we should. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Is there anybody here this morning that you're not sure of eternal life? You don't know whether you have salvation. But you're concerned for your soul. You'd like me to pray for you as I close the service in just a moment. I'm not going to say your name or draw attention to you. But if that's a concern on your heart, would you either slip up your hand and put it back down or make eye contact with me and look back down? All right, Christians? The Holy Spirit convicting you of anything this morning? Is there anyone who would say, I'm repenting in my heart right now? Would you remember me in prayer? Does that describe anybody this morning? If so, same thing. Lift your hand, put it back down. Make eye contact with me, look back down. Our Father, you're good. When we don't understand, when we don't like it, you're good. Please help us remember that. There are going to be opportunities maybe yet today in our lives that don't seem good. But you are good. Help us to believe that. Lord, if there's anybody here or listening or watching who doesn't know for sure that sins are forgiven and that he or she has a place with you for eternity, Lord, please use your Holy Spirit. Let him do his work to draw that one to you. Continue to show us how we need to respond to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a song and close out.